Hello and welcome to the CEO interview. My name is Jean-François Manzoni. I'm the president of the International Institute for Management Development, better known as IMD. I have been studying, teaching and consulting for leaders for the better part of the last three decades. One of the benefits of this job is that I get to meet and discuss with some of the world's most interesting and successful business leaders. In this podcast series, you're going to have a chance to meet them too and to hear some of their insights and advice. We'll talk about their business, their career, their successes and their challenges, and some of the lessons they have learned so far. In today's episode, I'm delighted to introduce you to Alexis Nazar. I first met Alexis Nazar when he was CEO of Bata, the world's largest shoemaker by volume that happens to be headquartered here in Lausanne. He led the company from 2016 to 2020. Prior to that, Alexis had started his career at Procter & Gamble, where he spent 17 years in various marketing and general management roles, then six years at Heineken as Global Chief Marketing Officer and President of the 8 billion euro Western Europe business. Alexis Nazar left Bata late last year to become the CEO of Kantar, one of the world's leading data insights and consulting companies. He just stepped down from this position after a short four months, a topic that we discussed briefly during the interview. I started the discussion by asking Alexis about his childhood and formative years in Lebanon and how they shaped his outlook on life and on work. It is true that Lebanon is extraordinary. It is extraordinary in both a positive way and unfortunately also a less positive way. But in a sense, having four passports makes me a true Lebanese. The best way I would describe it is as a cauldron of learning. Okay. Why is it a cauldron of learning? Is first of all, it's actually much smaller than most people think. It's actually 10,000 square kilometers, and the population is 5 million, including refugees. And it's an extraordinarily diverse place. I mean, you drive for half an hour, and you can't believe you're in the same place. Whether it is mentalities, communities, styles, architecture, it's all extremely diverse. So it is a true cauldron of learning in that sense. And by the way, what that teaches you is also adaptability. Because most people coming from small countries are adaptable. When you look at the Irish, they're very adaptable. And the Lebanese are the same. The second thing is what I call the semi-civil war. Uh, everybody calls it uh, a civil war, the 1975-1990 uh, war. It's actually it's a semi-civil war because everyone and his grandfather was involved in it. And that time was not easy, as you can imagine. But that is a time that also inculcated in me the notion not to take anything for granted. You see, when I was a kid and I went to the US and I heard people taking one year sabbatical to reach out to themselves and find their inner soul or going to Latin America, just spending some time, I, that was a bit outlandish for me. At that time, for me, it was survival, success, and elbowing your way through life. And, and since then, I still have some instincts that I maintain, which is I always have a very clear and acute consciousness of where my passport, my wallet, and my keys are. Because you never know when you have You've to hit be the ready. road. Exactly. And you can't take anything for granted. On a more personal side, at the end of that so-called civil war, my family's business went bankrupt. And from being a privileged kid who grew up in a privileged environment, which I did, to all of a sudden becoming a provider was quite formative. 
So you move from Lebanon to Berkeley, then you graduate from Berkeley, and after a short stint at Bechtel, you join PNG, where for 17 years you climb the corporate ladder. Uh, PNG, of course, is, is reputed for being a great marketing school and sometimes even a great management school. So 17 years there, very successful career. Uh, tell us what was great about PNG, what was maybe less great, and, and maybe up to three insights you got from your time at PNG. Yeah. PNG is and will always be my true alma mater. It opened the world for me. It made me discover different businesses, different countries, different culture. It invested massively in my training very early on in the process, and I still am benefiting from that. So I'm extremely grateful. The three things that PNG will teach you better than anybody else will teach you. First of all, it teaches you sharpness of thinking. So when I joined PNG, I had to write a one-page memo, the famous one-page memo, about some consumer attitude research. My boss had me rewrite it 18 times. 18 times. I hated his guts at the moment. We became good friends eventually, and we still are. But it is a school of incredible rigor. It's very rigorous. The second thing, which is a little bit lost these days, because social media has lots of virtues, but lots of sins as well. Brevity. <laughs> I, I am a big fan of brevity. And by the way, if you haven't read the famous memo of Winston Churchill, I'll recommend it. Yeah, he wrote an excellent memo on brevity in the middle of World War II. PNG teaches you brevity. Today, I sit at management meetings with PowerPoint decks of up to 220 right. slides. And up to slide 210, you probably don't even know where they want to get to. I find that an extraordinary waste of time. Generally speaking, when you brief, your thinking is sharpened before it even has the opportunity to be criticized. It's more respectful to other people's time and it's more productive in meetings. So it teaches you brevity. And last but not least is brand management. Most of brands in PNG are in fairly unsexy categories, right? I mean, soap and detergents and diapers. It's not easy to build brands in categories like that. It's a lot easier to build them in technology or in fashion because you immediately have the attention of the potential consumers. But building brands in such categories require incredible discipline and very robust IP in terms of uh, brand management development. And PNG is an excellent school in that sense. A quick follow-up question, because as I, was, as I was listening to the rigor and the 18 times, when does rigor stop and bureaucracy or stubbornness start? Is, is, there, is there a risk that when we are that, that disciplined, it, it gets in the way or not? Yes. There is sometimes a tendency towards narrow perfectionism, which sometimes become bureaucratic, which again was, at that time I left a while ago, a bit of a weakness of the company, okay. in a sense that things were sometimes slower than they needed to be. Now, the hit rate was always high, and risk profile was very low, but it took time, and sometimes it gave competitors an advantage. So yes, there is a balancing act to be made. You're right. Okay. And, and at the end of the day, we often all have the qualities of our faults or the faults exactly. of our qualities. But clearly, a fine line here. Now, 
PNG then invites you to go to the US, and I understand you and your family are a bit lukewarm about the idea. And, and that's when the Heineken offer materializes. Now, first, on agreeing to join Heineken. Of course, Heineken is a great company, an amazing brand, and, and by the way, a company that we've been very fortunate to work with. It's also a pretty regulated marketing environment, and, and it's alcohol, which has some beneficial side effects for human beings, but also a certain amount of potential collateral damage. First question, before joining, any concerns or internal debates when considering their offer, given the industry and the product? Not at all. I'm, I'm a believer in freedom of choice. For me, if a product is legal, then it is the duty and the responsibility of the maker to make it and sell it in a responsible way and for the consumer to consume it in a responsible way. And I have to say that Heineken was always extremely disciplined when it got to respecting laws, regulations, and even going beyond that. I would even go further. It offered us incredible creative opportunities and innovation opportunities. Because in the end, it gives you a different twist to talking about a category. A brand that says, don't drink too much, in a convincing way, okay. not in a tick-the-box way, is a brand that's confident. And a brand that's confident is a cool brand. And a cool brand endures. We developed advertising that shows that one guy wanted to date the DJ. The DJ is only available at 6 o'clock in the morning. And if you are drunk at 6 o'clock in the morning, your chances are pretty slim. So the Heineken man, who wasn't and was responsible, could get the girl at the end of that ad. That's just one example at, at how you can twist it and make it work for you in a creative way. Interesting. So actually, uh, my, my next question was five years at Heineken. What was great? What, if anything, was less great? And, and one to three insights. So I guess one already is what was great was was working with a great brand. What else do you remember? First, for the, one, the one highlight for me for my time at Heineken, at the beginning as CMO, then as president, it was the most fun work I've done. I had great fun. Of course, you're hobnobbing the world to go to uh, the Champions League games. Champions League, yeah. James Bond, Coachella Festival, cool brand, checking nice bars. You know, it's a fun category. But not only that, it's also a Dutch company with the Dutch informal ways and sense of humor, Amsterdam, and a brand that has at its essence wittiness. So the whole mix made it a quite a fun experience, I would say, and I remember it very fondly. Um, some of the thing, key takeaways uh, I have from that experience at Heineken is, contrary to P&G, Heineken was remarkably agile, fast, and nimble for its size because there is an attitude of holding hands when there is risk. Everybody is holding hands. Whereas in some other companies, generally the consequences of a poorly calculated risk by far outweigh the positive consequences if it's well calculated. What you have to gain if something goes right is dwarfed by what you have to do if something goes wrong. And this is when people become risk-averse and slow. And getting that balance right is important. And, and Heineken was good at it at the time, I would say. So, so, in other words, we can make a mistake, but we discussed it up front. And let's learn, let's yeah. move on. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's pretty powerful. Okay. Because you have to make sure the risk is symmetrical between success and failure. It cannot be asymmetrical. Otherwise, you get, you get what you deserve. <laughs> so that is one thing which was, which was interesting. 
The other part uh, of my time, which was interesting, is also learning to develop asymmetric strategies. When I was appointed president of Europe, it was a region that was not growing market share for more than 10 years. And people kind of thought, it's normal. Right, it's of Europe. course. It's That's normal. why we diversify in other countries. It's normal, yeah. right? I say, you know, unless you have an 80% market share, no, it's not normal. Okay, so change <laughs> of mindset. If you have a 30, 35% market share, what about the remaining 65? Why is that so normal, right? Notwithstanding antitrust considerations, there right. was clearly a cultural shift to be made, but more importantly, an asymmetric strategy to be developed. And we said, what was our strength as a company at that time? A is brands. We were much better brand managers than anybody else. We could build cool brands people remember, even sometimes for beers that have absolutely nothing special from a product standpoint. And that's something we drove hard. Because of the cost-cutting exercises before, what happened, people cut into marketing costs. That was a mistake. Okay. You don't cut into your competitive advantage. The second thing was innovation. We developed incredible innovation agenda. I mean, at the time I joined Heineken, in 2010, the beer industry had an average innovation rate of 0.4%, and Heineken had 1%. When I left, it was close to 15%. And everybody in the industry was innovating. What's beautiful about innovation is that everybody wins. Everybody wins. You just enlarge the pie. You win, the consumer win, the distributor win, the government win, and competition wins, because people copy each other eventually. And then the third one was the company had a solid position in the on-market, in the on-trade, bars, restaurants, hotels. And since these were complex to operate, for a long time we didn't, they weren't paid enough attention. Whereas in reality, is there a better place to build brand equity than in a fantastic restaurant or in a cool bar, especially if you're selling premium brands? So we doubled down on that. So these three asymmetric moves actually allowed us to regain the offensive in Europe and grow profitably after 10 years of decline. Now, uh, let me uh, ask a follow-up question on this. You had a, a strategy or a tagline which was not an inch back. Mm -hmm. What did that mean? Let me give you my philosophy on words. Okay. I believe in the power of words and the power of language. Because when you run an organization of several thousand people, none of them will ever remember corporate platitudes. Okay. Oh, we have to develop a revised way of go-to-market. Nobody will remember this kind of stuff. Okay? We have to transform our supply. Nobody remembers this. This stays at the boardroom, boardroom minus one. Colorful and accurate and representative words flow in the organization like olive oil. They flow and they stick. If you use the word congruent, people will remember it more than consistent. Okay. Okay? But they need to reflect what you mean by it. When we developed the new strategy for Europe, to revive Europe, we called it not an inch back, because that's what we meant. We meant it stops here, that's and now it. it's forward. The retreat stops here. Yeah. It really stops here. And I tell you, when they you tell it. people not an inch back, they understand what you mean. Right. <laughs> And they get mobilized for it. So I'm a really big believer in the power of words. Colorful, accurate words that flow through organization and that people remember. And then the Bata opportunity comes up. Now, Bata is a company founded in the late 19th century with a proud heritage and also for many years a, 
a paternalistic and humanistic cultures with Batavilles, Bata townships, created around the factories. And it's also a, a private company controlled by uh, a family. By the way, also largely rebuilt after the Second World War. Now, first, why this job? How much was the desire to be number one? Uh, how much was it the industry? What led you to accept this opportunity? It's a mix of things. First of all, I love fashion. Okay, that's the, that's the frivolous part in me. I love fashion. I love design. So I was interested in that. Second, from an intellectual standpoint, I was always very intrigued by retail because as a, as a brand builder, this is a dream to control the consumer experience until the checkpoint. And then what was interesting is that that was part of the industry which was changing the most the fastest because of the digital revolution. And I was quite intellectually stimulated by the idea to be in the middle of that action during this industry transformation. The third thing is I was ready to be CEO. You know, I've been president, I've been vice president, I've been CMO, I, I was ready to be CEO. And the last one was a bit personal because I was going through a difficult phase family-wise. I was going through a divorce. And at that time, we felt that a job in Switzerland would create some stability for the kids as we go through that, uh, that difficult ordeal. So it's a mix of factors. Please allow me to stay just for a second on, I was ready to be CEO. How does that feel? Um, how does it feel to be CEO? Or to want no, to, to want to be CEO. So how does, it, how does it work in your head? You go like, I want to be the one who makes this. Because some people would say, why do I want this? It's going to be... Uh, more stress, more responsibility, more visibility. Is this something where you say, finally, I, 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 I help me understand. Well, how, does it, how does it come up? I think it's a combination of intellectual stimulation and ego. I think I would be dishonest if I said ego is completely absent from that equation. Intellectual stimulation in a sense that I've done good things and bad things in my life and in my career. But I've done quite a few positive business things in my life, and they affected the businesses I ran quite a bit. It's like, why can't I take the full equation? Why not? Okay. Why, why not me? Why couldn't I do it? So there's that intrigue. And the other one was also a sense of, of ego. I said, okay, why not culminate my career in being a CEO? What, what was the key challenge and the key opportunity at Bata? And were these already clear? when you took on the job or, or did they uh, appear gradually uh, as time passed? So the, the, the key challenge and the key opportunity. They were not clear. But what was clear is that change was required. Okay. Uh, the company was performance was flattish. And in some parts of the world, it was outright difficult, including particularly Europe. And I'm always a big believer that the origin of your brand needs to remain healthy because it's a fundamental part of your brand equity. So even if the Chinese consumer buys Bata in Singapore and they come to Europe and they find it not there or not present or not, or not distributed or presented in a quality way, it damages your equity. So I think your capital city needs to be spick and span. And we really had to do a lot of work on Europe. When I left it, it was doing very well. The second thing which was clear is that we were complete laggards in the digital revolution. Our supply chain was artisanal. Our omni-channel was just at its early phases. It was very localized efforts. There was no, 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 no global platform. And it was certainly not connected to the supply chain. And certainly not connected to the CRM. 
And the ultimate triangle you want to have in vertical retail is when you have your pipes connected. E-commerce, CRM, and supply chain. Because in that case, you optimize the cost of delivery, you optimize your inventory, you sell, and you learn about your consumer. And that triangle is really important. And that is something we developed, we identify as an opportunity as I, as I took over the job. So it was a lot of learning by discovery. Now, you led this global company featuring significant retail operations during the COVID crisis. Yes. What was the biggest challenge associated with the crisis? I'm not going to tell you anything original because I'm sure many of my peers have told you the same. Uh, number one is cash. Cash. It's not sexy, but it's the lifeline of any business and it's important. We had to immediately create a cash is king cabinet to deal with cash on a daily basis. So I was with the CFO and these guys every day to look at how, cash, how we could optimize cash between receivable, payables, uh, rent, inventory, orders. China, China was problematic. How do we deviate the supply chain away from China? Oh God, no, China is the first to be back. How do we recuperate the contracts without losing face with our suppliers? So first was cash. Second was supply chain. It was very, very complex. Third is uh, safety measures. How do, we, how do you reassure consumers that it's safe to come, that it's safe to try our products? That, so all these things were relatively new. We never had to do things like that. And, and then number three is organization morale. You know, when you're not delivering good results, where you're unsecure about your paycheck, when many of us did take a pay cut, um, how do you keep people positive, motivated, and hopeful in the future? And last but not least is communications. How do you communicate? I mean, I know that lots of people are all eulogical about Zoom and how wonderful new world with Zoom. I am not like that. I consider it has its positives. It, it meets some needs and probably will need to maybe meet face-to-face -face a bit less than before, but I don't think it replaces face-to-face -face contact. Unless you know the people you're dealing with and you're managing a process that is familiar, it's a very difficult process. It's much more formal, uh, much more prone to misunderstandings and potential unnecessary conflicts. So dealing with internal communication was also one of the challenges. So I would say cash, supply chain, safety, organization, morale, and internal communication. I would like to sure. dig deeper on, in your business and leadership philosophies, and I have two questions. The yeah. first one is on the importance of brands. Yeah. Now, in one of the articles I read on you, you were called the brand master. Uh, now, brands, I, I already, we can already tell our passion for you. Why? What do you like so much about brands? Brands are everything. And everything is a brand. You are a brand. I am a brand. He is a brand. IMD is a brand. Switzerland is a brand. Whether you recognize it or not, okay. everything is a brand. And what is ultimately a brand? A brand is any entity that has universally recognized characteristics. And okay. for consumers, it's a badge of trust. Pfizer or Sinovacs? You can already see the movie playing in people's minds. Everything is a brand. So I think brands are important. And relatedly, everything communicates. I once met a person that said everything communicates. And it's so true. Everything communicates. Everything you say, everything you don't say, everything you do, everything you don't do, everything that happens to you, everything that doesn't happen to you, everything communicates. So ultimately, 
Do you want to recognize that reality and be in charge of it? Or you want to let it happen to you? That's ultimately what it is about. Because of the importance of these things in society and the economic ecosystem, I find them incredibly exciting and important. Fascinating. Now, on the leadership side, you once described your leadership style as tight, loose, tight. Now, I knew tight, loose. Tight, loose, tight was new for me. Tell me more. If I simplify the universe of business operations, you have vision, strategy, you have execution, and you have results. Any management philosophy is a combination of your personal philosophy as the leader and your personality. And nobody can tell you that your personality does not play a role in your management philosophy. It's not true. It does. You have seen configurations which are in different shapes and forms. I've seen organizations and leaders who are tight, 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 tight on everything. These are called control freaks. Um, you have people who are loose, loose, loose. Okay, this is random management. But in most cases, it is loose, tight, tight, loose, tight, loose, loose, tight, loose. You know, you can play with it as much as you like. My philosophy has always been tight, loose, tight. We have to be 100% in control and aligned on the vision, on the design of the strategy, and on its execution at the strategic level. Otherwise, you don't have a strategy. You're running the company randomly, right? Okay. And you have very tight on results. If you're not tight on results, they just don't come. That's how the world works. In the middle, I tend to be relatively loose, provided the two ends are delivered. Okay. You know why? Because you attract and retain better people that way. If you want to be tight, 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 you're going to attract a different type of profile who are not as enriching to organizations as otherwise. And generally speaking, it worked for me. Generally speaking, people appreciate it. And generally, they honor the trust placed in them. Now, that doesn't mean you don't intervene in the middle when it's necessary, right? Or when you're called for. Sometimes somebody says, Alexis, I'd like to pick your brain on this. Right. Happy to interfere in that case. But I don't impose myself if things are going well. Now, late 2020, you agreed to join Kantar, again, a leading data insights and consulting company. You knew the company because you, you'd been a customer for many years. And Kantar had just changed CEO after Bain Capital took a 60% stake yeah. from WPP. Now, four months later, the mayonnaise didn't really take. Uh, what happened? So it's a good analogy, uh, the mayonnaise. Well, I'm, I'm French <laughs> also. So. <laughs> By the way, what happened is when Bain Cap started the recruitment process for me, it hadn't purchased Kantar since a long time. So they were also, in a way, learning about the company. And when I decided to do the start, the process started in June, if you like, in the middle in middle of last year. And when it culminated was the end of the year. And then I started my job in December. The reality is that the job was not what neither they nor I thought it was going to be. It was a different in nature. And then we collectively decided to call it a day because it would be less consequential if we made that decision earlier for myself and for the company than doing it rather later. We're living on very good terms. Um, they will tell you the same thing I am telling you, and I sincerely wish them the best of luck in recruiting a, a suitable successor. I do believe in the potential of Kantar. Last question. You graduated from Berkeley uh, basically 30 years ago. Let's assume you and I studied together and somehow we part ways and we just reconnect 30 years later. How does the Alexei of 2021 
compared to the Alexei of 1991. And not only how different are you, but how much was this sort of conscious construction on your side? Have you, over the years, worked on some aspects of, of your leadership or of your behavior and, and quote-unquote personality? Or would you say, ah, fundamentally, if you knew me 30 years ago, I'm still the same? Yeah, no, I'm not the same. There are some things that stayed the same, some things that didn't. Basically, I've always consciously uh, worked on myself until a point in time where I said, I'm working too much on myself. Because if you work too much on yourself, you're not authentic anymore. So there is a fine line here too. I think you have to work on yourself, but there are some things in yourself that will never change and you have to recognize it and play on them. This is like you do with, when, you, when you develop a strategy for a company. There are some things that will not change. There's no point in changing them or working on them. It can be damaging. The things that didn't change, I'm still curious and, and I'm still very eager to learn new things. I've always been a very curious and an avid reader and I've always been ambitious. The things that didn't improve, I haven't become more patient with age. Okay. So <laughs> that did not improve. The two things though that I've learned over time is became more intellectually humble. You know, in, in recent literature, there is a big uh, play on humility. And, and for a while, you had a competition among CEO who was the most humble of, of all. The reality is there is nothing wrong with attitudinal confidence. But intellectual humility is very valuable. Because as long as you maintain intellectual humility, you are cognizant of your risks, your mistakes, and what you need to learn. And I developed that over time. When I was younger, I, was, I thought I was extremely intelligent. I'm reasonably intelligent. <laughs> I'm not extremely intelligent. And that is something I've learned over time, and that helped me. The other thing is I've learned over time is the power of collective success. I believe in inclusive capitalism more and more. I think inclusive capitalism, where everybody participates in success, is a lot more sustainable when shareholders, management, employees, communities, consumers, distributors, and governments win together, it's a lot more sustainable. It's a lot more moral, it's much better for the ecology and the environment, and it's much more sustainable economically. So I really believe in the virtues of inclusive capitalism. How will that influence your next step? In every way. Your next adventure. In every way. These are some of my beliefs, uh, and they're very sincere beliefs in making the world a better place. I mean, every crisis the world suffered from came from lack of inclusive capitalism, lack of it. And now, I'm not proning Trotskyism by any, by any measure, but I think we have some way to go to create a society that is a bit more equal than it has been. Alexi, I want to thank you for your time and for your candor and for your insights. It was truly a joy to welcome you today. A pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alexi Nazar as much as I did. To hear more such interviews as soon as they come out, click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. You can also find a range of forward-thinking analyses, business intelligence and insights in our new magazine and content ecosystem called I by IMD. You will be able to register by clicking in the link that appears in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening and until next time.